DiscerningHearts.com presents a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Father Gallagher was ordained in 1979 as a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He obtained his doctorate from the Gregorian University and has dedicated many years of extensive ministry to retreats, spiritual direction, and teaching on the spiritual life. He is also the author of several books on the spiritual teachings of St. Ignatius of Loyola and the life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, founder of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. Father Gallagher is also featured in several series produced by EWTN, including Living the Discerning Life. A Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Father Gallagher, thank you once again for joining me. Thank you, Chris. In our previous conversation concerning the Lord of the Rings, we had just begun talking about those wonderful creatures called the hobbits, who can kind of seem just a little bit kind of like ourselves. Yes, very much so. Tolkien actually says of himself in one of his letters that in everything except size, that is physical stature, I'm a hobbit. And he goes <laughs> on to enunciate how he likes colorful waistcoats and smoking pipes and lots of nice meals and so on. Actually, Tolkien says that the the inspiration for this quality in the hobbits came from uh, World War One. You know, he was uh, a soldier and fought in World War One, And while there, he saw these ordinary Englishmen, Tommies as they were called, with no particular educational background, just ordinary, simple, humble people, perform feats of amazing endurance and heroism, sometimes with great heroism, give their lives or face great odds. And that's when he first became aware of the of the hidden amazing qualities in the ordinary person. And so that's really the the origin of the hobbits. And it's it's that quality that Gandalf expresses um, when he sees this in, in Frodo. When Frodo, not only with great fear and with a heavy sense of burden, is about to say yes to taking on the responsibility of the ring now that he knows what it entails, but uh, even with a kind of eagerness and desire that is, as Tolkien writes, so strong that it overcame his fear. And then Gandalf sees this, that's when he says, my dear Frodo, hobbits really are amazing creatures. And that's so encouraging for us because it says that in God's eyes, we are capable of a lot more than we realized. When Peter in the boat says to the Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. I love the way the Lord responds because the Lord simply doesn't argue with Peter. He just says, do not be afraid and confirms the fact that he really will be in him in his mission of as a fisherman of men. And we know the sequel in Peter's life as the head of the church. And just to know that God's grace and God's love and God's confidence, if I can use that word, in us is such, can give us hope and energy in facing tasks that we clearly understand the Lord has called us to carry and which at times seem beyond our capabilities. No, with God's grace, we too really are amazing creatures. There are latent capabilities of which we we may never be aware, unless God called us to go on the journey through some situations at time which can seem quite difficult to us. Now, I'll quote from another line in 
another of Tolkien's letters. And he's talking here, he's explaining why he leaves the uh, tale of Arwen and Aragorn, their long courtship, marriage, and then eventually what happens when Aragorn faces death, why he leaves most of that in the appendices rather than in the story itself. He says that story of Arwen and Aragorn is part of the essential story and is only placed so, that is, in the appendix rather than the story, because it could not be worked into the main narrative without destroying its structure, which is planned to be habitocentric, that is, primarily a study of the ennoblement or sanctification of the humble. So that, as he's describing here, the real center of focus in The Lord of the Rings is the hobbits. And so with great skill, Tolkien crafts the story so that there is always the hobbit involved. When the, the four hobbits are together, we see them as the actors. Later, Frodo and Sam are separated, and they are the primary characters in the journey into Mordor. And then Merry and Pippin get separated so that there is always a hobbit that is involved in the story. And Tolkien says this is deliberate. The, the book is planned to be hobbitocentric or centered on the hobbits. And as he explains, to be primarily a study of the ennoblement, or to use the Christian word, or the sanctification, he says, of the humble. These amazing creatures whose latent capabilities at a pinch, as he says, are drawn out in a way that ennobles them or sanctifies them, makes them grow in holiness. And all of that applies to us as well. We're hobbits. Now, as a foil to this, there is one hobbit who does not go on the journey. And so Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin all do go on the journey, but one who does not. And this is their friend, Fredegolt Bolger, popularly called Fatty. And he's a good friend of theirs. He's the one who prepares the house in Buckland when Frodo gives out that he's leaving Bag End and he does sell it and that he's moving back closer to his own place of origin in Buckland, one of those who is part of this plan so that his journeying with the ring will not appear to be a journeying with the ring, but simply a normal moving back to his place of origin. The one who prepares the house for them is Fredegar Bolger. And now the point, they've gathered at the house, and they are on the verge of the next stage of the journey, which is going to take them into the old forest which is a place of great fear for the hobbits. And Fredegar says this, but that can only mean going into the old forest, said Fredegar, horrified. You can't be thinking of doing that. It is quite as dangerous as black riders. And Mary answers, no, it does seem like the best way. With luck, we might get a considerable start. But you won't have any luck in the old forest, objected Fredegar. No one ever has luck in there. You'll get lost. People don't go in there. And Mary, who is leading things at this point, uh, insists that they really uh, do need to do that. Well, do as you think best, said Fredegar. I am more afraid of the old forest than of anything I know about. This is one who is afraid of the journey. And he's a good man, or a good hobbit, uh, as we'll see. The stories about it are a nightmare, but my vote hardly counts, as I am not going on the journey. Still, I am very glad that someone is stopping behind who can tell Gandalf what you have done when he turns up, as I'm sure he will before long. And Tolkien elaborates. Fond as he was of Frodo, Fatty Bulger had no desire to leave the Shire, nor to see what lay be outside it. So he has no 
desire. He desired to help, certainly, but not to go on this journey. His family came from the East Farthing and so on, but he had never been over the Brandywine Bridge. His task, according to the original plans of the conspirators, that is, the four hobbits, was to stay behind and deal with inquisitive folk and to keep up as long as possible the pretense that Mr. Baggins was still living at Crick Hollow, where the house is. He had even brought along some old clothes of Frodo to help him in playing the part. They little thought of how dangerous the part may prove, because eventually the Black Riders do come to the house in the hope of catching Frodo there. So they leave, set off to the woods. Fredegar says finally this, You wait until you are well inside the forest, said Fredegar. You wish you were back here with me before this time tomorrow. Now, Fredegar does stay behind when later in the story, Saruman sends his men to the, to the Shire to do as much damage and destroy as much as he can. Fredegar heads a group of hobbits who rebel against this and attempt to do their best in clandestine ways to counter Saruman. He is captured and put in the prison, the lock holes, where he remains until he is freed after the scouring of the Shire at the end of the story. So he does play a part, but it's a, a lesser part than that of the four hobbits who do go on the journey. He never has to face the full great dangers of the journey, which leads them into all kinds of battles, Frodo and Sam into Mordor itself. But he will never grow in the same way as the other four. That's what God is offering us. If we say yes to the call, to the responsibilities God has called us to carry, as I was saying before, in our marriage, in our families, in our work, in our respective vocations and service in the church, then we will face burdens. There will be struggles and difficult times along the way. But to use Tolkien's word, as we go faithfully through that journey, we will be ennobled or sanctified. Something in us will grow in stature as the four hobbits who go on this journey return very different from the four hobbits who left the journey. It's interesting, isn't it, that Fatty, that's how I always think of him, mm-hmm. is Fatty doesn't avoid a cross. Even though he did not want to enter into the journey, he could not avoid suffering, could he? No, because he's faithful. He's faithful within his own limits. And that's why I say I don't speak at all negatively of him. Uh, He stays in the Shire, does not go further, does not want to go further and face what will lie ahead of the other four. But within his own realm, he will do his best to support their journey, support their cause, and will pay a certain price for it. But it will be a different kind of growth than to the others who have said a full yes to the call, have not held back out of fear of facing this or that old forest, in quotes, to use the, to use that example. And consequently, having gone through the struggle and the occasional darkness, you know, in the journey, grow correspondingly as God intends as they go faithfully through it and find out in a way that, that fatty never will to the same measure that hobbits really are amazing creatures, that they they are capable of more than they ever realized uh, when, when God calls them and they say yes to go, to go forward on the journey to which he's called them. We'll return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher 
in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help Discerning Hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. Now, we're going to skip ahead a bit in the story, and what we're omitting would be the, uh, as I say, the time in Buckland, the journey through the old forest, the meeting with Tom Bombadil, the struggle with the Barrow Whites and the Barrow Downs, uh, the journey in the, and the time in the Prancing Pony, the Inn of the Prancing Pony and Bree, the struggle on Weathertop, and the dangerous journey to the fords in front of Rivendell. Where uh, on Weathertop, Frodo is wounded by the knife of the king of the Nazgul and almost fades, almost succumbs, and barely survives, barely arrives to the safety of the haven of Rivendell in time. And through the skill of Elrond, the master of the elves and the great wisdom figure, through his skill and healing, is restored to health. And at this point, he is lying on his bed in the safety of Rivendell. Gandalf is seated in a chair beside him, and Tolkien writes this. Gandalf had moved his chair to the bedside and took a good look at Frodo. The color had come back to his face, and his eyes were clear and fully awake and aware. 
He was smiling, and there seemed to be little wrong with him. But to the wizard's eye there was a faint change, just a hint of transparency about him, and especially about the left hand that lay outside the coverlet. Still, that must be expected, said Gandalf to himself. He is not half through yet, and to what he will come in the end, not even Elrond can foretell. Not to evil, I think. He may become like a glass filled with a clear light for eyes to see that can. Already at this stage in the journey, Frodo is changing. He's growing. Something is being transformed in him. When Frodo does awaken and arise, he looks at himself, finds the clothing there for him, clean clothing, and Tolkien writes, Looking in a mirror, he was startled to see a much thinner reflection of himself than he remembered. It looked remarkably like the young nephew of Bilbo, who used to go tramping with his uncle in the Shire. But the eyes looked out at him thoughtfully. Yes, you have seen a thing or two since you last peeped out of a looking glass, he said to his reflection. The eyes looked out at him thoughtfully. And there you get just the glimpses of the change in the growth that is happening in Frodo. That brings us now to the moment of the council, where the strategy against Sauron is going to be uh, determined, as I mentioned before, seemingly by chance, but very much within the design of the someone unnamed, who is, and this is God's providence at, at work, representatives of the various free peoples of the world have come together. The hobbits, the wizard is there, the elves, Legolas, the, uh, the, uh, the wood elf, Gimli the dwarf, Boromir the man from Gondor in the south. And you have this long chapter in which Tolkien gives the background to the choice that uh, they've now faced. Actually, Tolkien had hoped to have the Silmarillion, which is the account of the preceding two ages, really the origin of the world, and then its prehistory, and then the first and second age, which precede the third age in which the action of the Lord of the Rings takes place. He had hoped to have that book published first, and had that been the case, he would not have had to go through this long chapter where all the history has to be recounted. But it's here because the Silmarillion was not yet published when the uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, itself came to be published. And so you read through that, and it gives you the, the big picture, and it leads the council to the point where uh, they face now the decision that lies before them. Everything has been said, and now all that remains is the decision, what's going to happen, what they're going to do with the ring to try to undo Sauron's power or desire for power. So Elrond, who is the wisdom figure, says, he is very wise, Sauron, that is, and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power, and so he, he judges all hearts. Into his heart the thought will not enter that any will refuse it, that having the ring we may seek to destroy it. This is really Sauron's great weakness, that evil can only view the world in terms of evil. It cannot understand the good. The good can understand evil, but evil can never understand good, and that will be the downfall of Sauron. Uh, if we seek this, that is, to destroy the ring, we shall put him out of his reckoning. At least for a while, said Elrond. 
The road must be trod, but it will be very hard, that is, to take the ring to the cracks of doom and throw it in and destroy it. Now, the reason the ring has to be taken there to the cracks of doom is because it was there in the second age that Sauron forged this, the one ring, the great ring. And, and so the, it is only in that fire that where it was made, the ring can also be destroyed. And neither, uh, let's see, the road must be trod, but it will be very hard. And neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted, this is us now, this quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the hands of the great are elsewhere. And that really is, is, is all of us. Bilbo at this point presumes that what they're saying is that as you, Bilbo, started this whole a situation you have to end it and what he's being asked to take the ring to the to the fire and Gandalf indicates that Bilbo's part in this story except as a recorder of the story has passed so Bilbo is relieved to find out that he's not being asked in his old age and so he says well what do you mean by they the mess the messengers who are to be sent with the ring and so Bilbo says exactly and who are they to be that seems to me what this council has to decide, and all that it has to decide. Elves may thrive on speech alone, and dwarves endure great weariness. But I am only an old hobbit, and I miss my meal at noon. Can't you think of some names now, or put it off till after dinner? No one answered. And now the real moment of choice is upon Frodo. Unfortunately, in the movie, uh, if you remember, Peter Jackson describes this scene as a point when they all start very vocally arguing with each other. And actually in the book, it's exactly the opposite. There's a complete silence. They all sit together and no one speaks. Mm -hmm. The noon bell rang. Still, no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned toward him. All the council sat with downcast eyes, as if in deep thought. A great dread fell upon him, as if he was waiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might after all never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words. These are his own words. And wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said though I do not know the way. And again, the, it, this is packed. The words that he says are his own. It's a free response and a free yes to the call that he now realizes, this doom, as he says, that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might be lifted from him. And in his heart, there's an overwhelming longing just to stay in the situation of peace and rest. All of these things we can relate to in the times when we are faced with similar choices to be faithful to the Lord. But again, you see the interplay of freedom and grace. At last, with an effort, there's the human effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words. They're his own words, but they are his own words as if some other will, there you catch the traces of God's providence at work, as if some other will was using his voice. I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. Tolkien in his letters refers to this moment at one point when he speaks about how grace is at work in Frodo's story at several points. And at this particular point, Tolkien writes, 
Frodo was given grace, in quotation marks, first to answer the call at the end of the council after long resisting a complete surrender. So that in Tolkien's understanding of his own story, the fact that Frodo, who has so long not wanted to do any more than get the ring to Rivendell and then give it into the hands of the wise and the greater people of higher stature than his own, who has long wished that this doom, as he calls it, might be spared him, who feels this overwhelming longing just to remain in the situation of peace and not to have to face the danger of the journey, the fact that he is able to accept the call, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way, is a work of grace in his life. And that too speaks very really to something in our own hearts and our own lives. I think we can look back over our lives and see these moments. But it's also a great hope for us in the present that when the call is clear and it seems beyond us, something else is at work in us, something else that lifts us up, ennobles us, sanctifies us, and makes us capable of saying yes in a way that, humanly speaking alone, we never could do. And that is the the mystery and the power of God's loving grace at work in our hearts. That's That's really the deep source of our confidence, not our own strength, certainly. I think, again, of Thomas Moore as he watches this situation evolving in England and sees the moment inexorably arriving when he must choose. He does everything he can. He keeps silence. He resigns his position as chancellor, does all that he can to avoid the the moment of, of real test and proof. But when it comes, he makes the choice. He's faithful. It's that same dynamic, and that's the moment that Frodo faces here. And by the power of a grace that is beyond his human capability, this ordinary hobbit, like every one of us, is able to say yes to God and everything will change in the world. I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. It's like the married couple who on the day of their wedding say for better or worse by a grace that is given to them in the sacrament and who will be faithful. So after Frodo has signified his willingness to take the ring, let's just uh, stop just very briefly on Elrond. Elrond is the, the lord of Rivendell, this little island of peace in the increasingly dangerous world, this haven of the elves. Elrond is born in the first age of the world. All of that is recounted in the Silmarillion. And he engages in battle against Sauron at various points. He is one of the wise, one of the learned, and a great champion for good in the world. He is the bearer of one of the three rings, the uh, the elven rings. Gandalf and Galadriel are the bearers of the other two. And if you, if you think about it, you notice that Elrond never engages in war in The Lord of the Rings. I do have to say that the uh, character who portrays Elrond in the, uh, the movies, The Lord of the Rings, really doesn't get it too well. Uh, he almost seems like he's uh, constantly angry. Certainly doesn't have the stature of the, of the wisdom that Elrond portrays and, and uh, contains. Elrond uh, doesn't fight in war. His role in the service of good is to be the wisdom figure, the memory of all that is good in the world. The one who creates the place where those who are actively engaged on the journey can find rest and restoration and hope. It's almost like when we go on a, on a retreat for a while just to have the space to re, re-energize our energies in the service of the Lord. That's Elrond's role here. 
Elrond raised his eyes and looked at him, Frodo. If I understand aright all that I have heard, he said, I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo. And there again, very, very quietly, you have the, the, the reference to the role of God. This task is appointed for you, Frodo. And that if you do not find a way, no one will, which is another powerful thing. If you do not, this task is appointed for you. And that if you do not find a way, no one will. This is sometimes referred to as the scandal of particularity. If we think of Mary at the Annunciation and the angel waiting for her yes, you know how St. Bernard has that powerfully hom- powerful homily where the whole world, the angels and all are waiting for Mary's reply since everything in the salvation of the world depends upon it. If Mary does not say yes, there's no other Mary waiting in the wings. This task is appointed for you, Frodo, and that if you do not find a way, no one will. And that is true in the lives of every one of us. This task, this marriage to this man or this woman, this task to be the mother or father of these children, this task to be a presence of Christ in this place in the work world, to have this role in this particular parish in the church or this particular group, to love and serve this particular set of relatives and friends and people. This task is appointed to you, and if you do not find a way, no one will. There again we touch the dignity that God has given every one of us, why every one of our lives is precious. So much so that, as I say, some authors speak of this almost as a scandal, the scandal of particularity, that God would let so much depend on the free choices of each one of us to say yes to his call in the place where he has set us in life. You know, there's this uh, famous quote from John Henry Newman in uh, one of his meditations. I'll just read a few sentences from it where he says this powerfully. We are all created to his glory. We are created to do his will. I am created to do something or to be something for which no one else is created. This task is appointed for you, Frodo. And if you do not find a way, no one will. I have a place in God's counsels, in God's world, which no one else has. God knows me and calls me by my name. Now, biblically, the name is the mission. God has created, this this line is one that I come back to often. God has created me to do him some definite service. Every one of us, every one of us listening can say these words of him or herself. God has created me to do him some definite service. In this vocation, in these circumstances, he has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. And that's what Elrond is expressing at this particular point in the story. The task is appointed to you, Frodo. If you do not find a way, no one will. Now, in the story itself, um, Gandalf and Elrond refuse to take the ring. And the reason is not any kind of holding back or because they're afraid. It's because they're figures of a greater stature, of a greater power, and they know that the ring will work on them a temptation too strong for them to resist. To have themselves figures of great power, to have that kind of great power in their hands, they are wise enough to know that they are not strong enough to resist the temptation to use the ring, which will turn all that they do to evil. Whereas Frodo, who is like us, he's an ordinary person, he's a hobbit. Frodo is much more likely to be able to carry the ring faithfully 
than even those of greater stature. And this is what uh, Elrond has said earlier, that small hands must do these tasks while great hands are busy elsewhere. This is the hour of the Shire folk, Elrond continues, when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great, who all the wise could have foreseen it. This term wise is a term that Tolkien uses throughout the Lord of the Rings, and it refers to the the high elves, the, the highest leaders of the elves, or the Eldar, as uh, Tolkien calls them, and the wizards, who together formed this, the White Council, which was the foe of Sauron. So among the wizards, this would include Gandalf and Saruman before he turned traitor and was cast from the council. And then the highest of the, of the Eldar, of the elves, Elrond, Galadriel, Glorfindel, Círdan, Celeborn. The, these are the wise. And what Elrond is saying now, who among the wise could have ever foreseen that this task of all tasks would be appointed to one of the one of the Shire folk arising from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Uh, Father Gallagher, there's there's so much that uh, we need to address yet in these characters, but I think there there is a subject that we might want to put right out there for some of our listeners. Their only experience of The Lord of the Rings has been the movies. It is important, is it not, that we allow the writing to have a chance to speak to us in Tolkien's terms. I, this happens quite often when this type of work that has such a richness to it is to make it into a feature film. And while the films have been really quite lovely, extraordinary works of art that have received a great deal of accolades, there have been some major, as you've kind of pointed out in several instances so far, uh, some rather strong liberties that were taken and really changed, unfortunately, some of the trajectory of where the story was going. Well, that's a big issue, uh, Chris, because a lot of things are at work in that. As an author writes a book, all that it costs the author is the time that the author puts into the writing. But when a director makes a movie, you know, he's spending millions and millions and millions of dollars, and he has to shape the movie in such a way that it's going to financially meet financially with it. Mm-hmm. So that the, the filmmaker has to cater in some measure to the tastes of movie-going audiences in the day which Peter Jackson does. Now, he does a number of things remarkably well. His imagination at some points, I wouldn't say everywhere, but at a number of points is uh, probably better than any imagination that most of us would have. You think, for example, of the way he depicts Minas Tirith in uh, The Return of the King, you know, the white city sent against, set against the mountain with the seven levels and that jutting piece that looks like the bow of a ship. It's just amazingly well done. And you could go on with this. There are a number of things that he does very, very well. But in order to create a movie that is going to sell and, and keep the attention of the movie-going audience, essentially what he did was to make it largely an action movie. So things happen very quickly in The Lord of the Rings. You have long and developed battle scenes 
which are impressive. You know, think of Legolas swinging from elephant to elephant in the battle before Minas Tirith, you know, and shooting uh, the elephants there just are remarkable things, or the way the battle at Helm's Deep is depicted in the two towers. Mm-hmm. But something uh, inevitably in that, something of the the depth and the nobility of the story is lost. The story doesn't move as fast as the movie does. And so you have time as the story unfolds to really taste the landscapes, to to watch the development of the characters. There are times of great tension and great action, and then there are times of respite. For example, as at Rivendell, as we're saying right now, so I think in Peter Jackson's, I don't know what, we, what word we would use here as an explanation of the movie, uh, some of the change is dictated by the fact that the movie really has to be a movie, movie that viewers will want to see today. Now, having said that, it is true that he makes some changes in the story and in the characters that if you know the book well, you regret and you wish that he hadn't made. Just to mention one of them, the figure of Faramir is very poorly portrayed in the movie. Mm-hmm. Faramir is a figure of great nobility in the Return of the King in that part of the story. But he becomes, uh, he be, he's diminished. Really, I would say in general, something of the high nobility of the characters and and the development of them, some of that is inevitably lost in the movies as the action sweeps things along so quickly. Mm -hmm. So I have mixed feelings about the movies. I think it's a good thing that they were made. They exposed many millions of people to the Lord of the Rings who otherwise would have never uh, had any exposure to it. And probably many of them would have never read the books who were led to read the books by by watching the movies. And because the story is fundamentally faithful to a Christian perspective on the world, a movie that portrays it is going to be a movie in which goodness and evil, um, the movie gets them right, you know, because it's portraying a book that gets them right. And you sense that, that there's no ambiguity really about good or evil. Sauron is just evil. The black writers are just evil. Uh, Gandalf is is good and the elves and so on. Although even the good have their struggles and so on, but good and evil are clear. So as uh, one person said, if you compare the movies of The Lord of the Rings to movies in general, you you have to give it an A+. It takes what is one of the greatest works of literature and um, portrays enough of it and with uh, really uh, consummate technical skill that you get good movies out of it. But certainly it can't compare to the book. The kinds of things that we're looking at in the book, you you won't get out of the movies. And that's why as we're going through this, I'm really referring to the book and only very occasionally to the movie uh, because the real richness is in the book. In uh, concluding this particular conversation, any final thoughts? The thought I would say that there is a task appointed for us too. And like Frodo, it's a task that no one else can do. Repeat again, this is one of the ways in which we see the amazing dignity that God has given every hobbit, every one of us who is just an ordinary person whose name is not in the paper, but whose life is precious in God's eyes and important in terms of the mission that God has given us. It's such a richness and it's so encouraging just to reflect on that. Very well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to 
a Lord of the Rings spiritual retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Lord of the Rings Spiritual Retreat with Father Timothy Gallagher. 